welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the sweet and sultry sounds of the Green and Red podcast. This is Scott Parkin co-host in Berkeley, California. And this is our last episode of 2022. And we just want to thank everybody who has been uh, our loyal listeners, our loyal donors, everyone who's been supporting us. We've had a little bit of a fundraising boom here in the last days of 2022. And just want to thank everyone for that. And as always, I am joined by um, Bob Azenko. And again, uh, Happy New Year to everybody and to you, Scott. Um, And Hard to believe we are finishing our third calendar year. Uh, just two kids with a dream. Uh, we started in February of 2020, uh, uh, just as the uh, pandemic was getting started. And, uh, you know, we are now in the top, what is it, half percent of political podcasts. And we've done, uh, we just did our 200th episode and we could not have done any of that without you. And we've had a great, uh, a great fundraising year, uh, way more people now. We're up to, I think, what, like almost 4,000 subscribers on YouTube. So it uh, has indeed been um, really gratifying because we are a scrappy little kind of specialty podcast, but we do the best stuff out there. So thank you all so much. And, um, and we're just, just to put it out there, just for everyone out there, we're a good time. We're funny. We're, we're, we're self-deprecating. And we have a lot of humility, but we have a good time at the yeah. sometimes at the expense of others. And yeah. so, and, and I think that's important. Actually, we we do like you know we make fun of other people, but you know we make fun of them because they kind of they're insular. These New York people who have kind of debates with each other and they're failed comedians and things. And we you know and it probably sounds like we're doing the same thing. We're getting in these pissy matches, but the reality is we're talking to a lot of people who would never ever be invited. Probably aren't even on the radar of a lot of those fancy kind of you know elitist podcasts. So. That's what we make fun of, but we don't really want to be part of that community. We're not getting any Koch money or, um, you know, move on money or anything like that. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. we uh, only get your money, or our, or it's our own money. So it's our, yeah, we have plenty of that. And 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 uh, before we leave, maybe we should do this now so I don't forget. But we also want to thank uh, so many people who are really vital to us doing this. Um, uh, our producers, producers, I guess, uh, Hap and Jeff, Hap Ingham and, and Jeff Wardauer, and. Uh, we have like great um, engineer and art guys, and you know Scott, you can mention them. Yeah, it's a, the, probably you know the, the definitely want to do a shout out to Isaac, who has like kept us going behind the scenes for better part of three years. He yeah. joined us uh, almost from the beginning, so big shout out to Isaac. Also, big shout out to Tobin, our art director, who also has been with us since the beginning and done a lot of the great design work that we put out there. Uh, want to help. Uh, excuse me, want to put out some uh, a good word for the folks who help us, our fiscal sponsors, the Oil and Gas Action Network. Uh, and then also never want to forget and never not want to shout out our music director, the one and only, the great Moody, who's our, uh, when you, when we're not doing outro musics from other people, the Green and Red Blues is a, is a riff put together by our longtime friend and good comrade, Moody. So big shout out to Isaac Tobin, the Oil and Gas Action Network, and Moody, plus our executive producers, Heppingham and Jeff Ordauer. So now to get started, um, we always do a year-end issue, a year-end episode, 
and uh, we kind of have a theme. So um, I picked it this year and uh, uh, I decided to, to do Lay for the Sky, uh, which is a Jackson Brown song, which really doesn't have anything to do with what I want to talk about. But it's, it's kind of a nice little segue. Um, I think what we've seen in the past week from Southwest Airlines has really been, you know, really kind of illustrative of, of both uh, 2022 and really, you know, America. This is kind of a good metaphor for what's happening in America. Uh, Southwest Airlines is just like utterly crashed. You know, fortunately, not literally crashed, but uh, it, it hasn't worked. It's just kind of gone, you know, gone dead. Um, its computer system failed. It is canceled like many mega mega thousands of flights. People are at the airports for days. Uh, they can't get rental cars. They can't get hotel rooms. There are piles of luggage that look like a small mountain at these airports. Um, they are not being refunded. Uh, uh, we have video of some airports where people are in line trying to rebook their flights and police are threatening to arrest them for trespassing. Uh, at the same time, I think this is important and it didn't really get covered much in 2020 uh, when the COVID shutdown occurred. Remember the government stepped in, created these like trillion dollar bailout programs and they gave Americans like $2,000 or $1,400 or whatever. It came to $1,200, various people got various amounts. Um, not surprisingly, corporate America got massive money. Uh, airlines in, in general got, I think, $36 billion, I believe. And part of that was a deal, I think it was Warren Buffett's idea, that they would then use their stock to pay back the government for those so-called loans. Um, and they pay back less than, I think, one-tenth of 1% 1 or something. It's just this minuscule amount. As for Southwest, um, Southwest got a $7 billion dollar bailout. We we talk about billions now so casually as if that's not like a big number anymore. I mean, do you have a billion dollars, Scott? Not on me, no. Uh, no, no, yeah. I, don't. I, I mean, that's <laughs> a lot of money. It's in my other pants. In my other pants. <laughs> yeah. Somebody once told me, and I didn't believe this until I got my calculator out, uh, if you gave somebody $5,000 every day since uh, the day Columbus arrived in the New World, you still would not have a billion dollars. $5,000 a day for 500 and whatever years. So that's a lot of money. Anyway, so they got $7 billion in bailouts. They spent $5.6 billion of that on customer service, computer upgrades, better food, cleaning the bathrooms. No, on stock buybacks. Uh, they gave their CEO a raise because he had worked so hard and done so well of $9.1 million that year. Uh, frontline workers uh, were working 16-hour shifts. And um, they spent zero dollars on updating their computer system. You actually have some experience in airlines. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked in the airline industry for a long time. I actually believe I, I saw you maybe that you have this about like the, the sort of things that they were telling their workers during the holiday season. Do you have that? Um, oh, yeah. But I forgot it. I didn't, I didn't save it. Just, yeah. just put a couple of things out there. They actually were not allowing employees to take holiday time off employees were not allowed to call in sick without like a doctor's note otherwise all was gonna it was all gonna result in termination and so you know billion dollar bailout execs you know big big investors are all having like a big sort of windfall in all of this money frontline workers are actually still are, are basically being you know have this like wage labor sort of you know pretty harsh sort of set of rules and guidelines put on them. And I think it's also <clears throat> important to note that the government's had a role in this too. Um, months ago, 38 uh, attorneys general, both Democratic and Republican, 
uh, sent a letter to the Secretary of Transportation, a guy who really earned that position, right, because he was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which is like, if that doesn't prepare you to, you know, control and manage a, a nationwide transportation system, I don't know what does. But uh, Buttigieg got a letter, uh, you know, basically warning him that the airlines were, were a disaster, right? And uh, they, you know, they gotten all these bailouts, but um, they weren't doing anything about consumer complaints. They weren't doing anything about, uh, you know, flights being delayed, luggages being lost, people weren't being, you know, kind of treated in any kind of customers, weren't being treated in a decent manner. Uh, and, you know, Buttigieg basically sat on it. Um, in fact, the Attorney General of New York, uh, Letitia James, the one who's kind of going after Trump, uh, warned of uh, a deeply troubling and escalating pattern of airlines delaying and canceling flights, especially during the holidays. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Alex Padilla, who is, I think, your new senator, right? Or relatively new senator. Yeah. Uh, wrote to Buttigieg warning about the same thing. And, um, you know, and, and Buttigieg hasn't done anything about it. David Sirota, who's a good journalist, uh, has written about this, I think, better than anybody else has. And it's just kind of a good, great metaphor, right? You have these, these government bailouts, these fat cat CEOs getting all this government money, stock buybacks. Uh, draconian labor practices, uh, no concern for consumers whatsoever. This is this is America, right? Yeah, that's pretty. It's pretty much the the. I don't want to call it the failure of the system. I actually feel like it's how the system's designed and working exactly how it's supposed to. But there is this sort of safety net that we had for a long time that uh, has been, you know, incrementally dismantled for the last forty or fifty years. Just to reflect back on a recent episode, we talk about you know, we talked with Noam Chomsky about the Democrats and the and the Democrats' war on the working class and progressive movements. This is a direct result of that. This is like I, I believe Professor Chomsky called it a brutal class war. We're in the midst of it, and this is a a, a key example, a, a critical example of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I kind of wondered if maybe because you know Wall Street was revolved by Trump, and I thought maybe that might signal some slight return to kind of the old idea of corporate liberalism where you actually kind of conduct, you know, like decent relationships and, and reform in order to maintain your consumer base and make more money that way. But but that was wrong, right? I, that hasn't happened. And I think the fact that the government continues to bail them out, you know, doesn't really, you know, leave them without any motive to, to make things better, right? If you can, you know, have delayed flights and missed flights and lose people's luggage and not even can be concerned that there's going to be a consequence for it, you know, and this is, this is America, right? I think, I mean, I think it talks a lot about infrastructure, too. And, um, you know, one of the things that also happened just in the past week was we had this massive blizzard nationwide, which also speaks to the whole climate crisis. But if we start talking about that, we will go on until 2024. Right. Uh, but um, and, and it really hit hard in Buffalo. And I think, what, 25 people have died already or more than 25, I, I, 28, maybe even 30 but, at this point from a snowstorm. Right. And I mean, if you've ever lived in the north, I mean, snowstorms can be vicious. But at the same time, you kind of see them coming. It's not like a tornado, right? Uh, and I think it's really illustrative too. Buffalo is a, it's a democratic city. Uh, Buffalo, remember, in 2021 had a, a mayoral election in the primary. The incumbent Democrat lost uh, to a DSA, I believe, type candidate, India Walton. And the Democratic Party was so pissed off about that. They staged a write-in campaign and got the incumbent who had lost the primary reelected to the mayor's office. And, you know, that they've done nothing. They were, they were hapless. They, they weren't prepared for it. And, you know, if you lived in the north, I mean, they're actually generally I live in a small town in Ohio, you know, part time. And, you know, whenever it snows, they're pretty good about getting trucks out, about you know, having emergency systems set up, salt on the streets, whatever. 
and and this was just utterly fail uh, an utter failure and you know it was a massive snowstorm to be sure but i think you know there, there's no concern for infrastructure just basic stuff walk around your neighborhood there 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 are probably sidewalks that are cracked and roads that have massive potholes and you know when i was a kid and back in my day you know uh, there were street lights everywhere you could walk at night and now there's like you know a street water uh light per block it's just really an utter failure i think in in the entire, you know, kind of nature of infrastructure in America, which is something that, again, the media doesn't really talk about, you know, our transportation system, trains, buses, you know, it's just the subways, they're, they're, they're in disarray. Yeah, I mean, we've, we're, we've, we've been in this era for a long time of like budget cuts and outsourcing, privatization and things like that. And I think, I think it's like having a real impact on, on, Infra, on the infrastructure of of cities uh it's it's you know where we're where i often say that this era we're in is like a new gilded age and you know just like what we've seen at southwest gates all over the country and what we're seeing in buffalo and uh, you know in other examples is like we're it's just this this decline back into uh, every every person for themselves, sort of thing. And of course, yeah. um, you know, and we have a critique around this: is like the is much of the much of the left is too busy debating each other on Twitter to actually be acting on this. That's this sort of insular debate culture, which is like become impotent uh, an, an impotent left in many ways, with yeah. with with some notable exceptions. Yeah. Uh, you know, also I think that this question of infrastructure, and I hate that you know, I. I People always accuse me of like, you like Trump. You like it. I mean, most of these cities where the problem is really acute are run by Democratic mayors. And, um, you know, last week we saw this this vile display from Greg Abbott, who's just like this piece of garbage, right? Where he, you know, busts these immigrants to, uh, you know, humans. He's using as a ploy to, to um, Kamala Harris's, you know, place in D.C., you know, just basically snatch them off the street and set them off. On Christmas Eve or whatever. On Christmas, Christmas Eve, Day. right? This guy is a good practicing Catholic, right? He's pro-life and all this bullshit. And he's just a vile piece of garbage. But, and, and he deserved to be condemned, obviously, right? But I think what's also important is like, um, and, and the media's actually been playing some attention to this lately. Uh, uh, homelessness is still a huge crisis in America. You know, who knows how many people are, are living in the streets? I mean, with the evictions going on and, and, and rent increases and things like that, it's obviously, you know, got to be a fairly significant number of people. Uh, and, you know, most of these cities now are, are doing... Um, you know, sweeps. I mean, when the blizzard was coming, they were being warned about sweeps, right? So these people, I mean, it was in Ohio last week, it was minus 30 wind chill. And most of these communities don't have any kind of plan for homelessness, for homeless people when something like that happens. And this is occurring, you know, in democratic cities. And I think that's something you have to take account of. I mean, you know, that we're not going to defend Trump and the GOP. They're obviously really, I mean, you can't even find the words, but this is really a massive structural problem in America. Can I, can I say something about homelessness? Yeah, of course. I, I just looked it up. It's about half a million to 600,000 people I sleep homeless every night. In I can't believe it's, I can't believe it's more, not more than that, honestly. No. Um, uh, but uh, San Francisco, the mayor, the, a neoliberal pro-tech, gives tax cuts to companies like Twitter and Google to put in big offices in, in downtown San Francisco. It's had to declare a state of emergency in certain neighborhoods 
of San Francisco because the homeless, the home, homelessness is houselessness has reached such a, a, a an epic a, a, an epic crisis. I just want to put that out. And yeah. um, my understanding is a person who lived in one of those neighborhoods that had like a huge homeless population is that they do these sweeps of these camps. They basically put them on buses and they send them to other cities in the state of California and the other cities. And I'm talking about like San Francisco buses, a bunch of homeless people to San Jose or Los Angeles. Los Angeles does the same thing. Like there'll be a time when you have an in influx of homeless population, houseless population into San Francisco. And they all say they also just got off the bus from Los Angeles. And so it's just, it's a cycle. And it's also, there's like no real solutions going on yeah. during the pandemic. It was even like a worse, a worse crisis. Uh, yeah. And I mean, and we condemn Greg Abbott as, as we should, but you know, again, I think that's really crucial. Like you're talking about places with democratic mayors and, and, uh, and the most liberal state. Right, and America. democratic governor. And Democratic not. So I said this is the most liberal, probably most liberal state in America, right? And and New York is the same. I mean, you have New York, uh, the mayor of New York is an ex-cop. The police budget in New York is 11 billion. Again, billion is a lot of money, right? Uh, I believe 1 billion of that is overtime. And I forget how much of it is spent on uh, paying people who are the victims of police brutality. And Adams is cutting the, the library budget. And, you know, when we talk about infrastructure, sure, it's buses. I think library is an infrastructure. Internet's an infrastructure, right? You need that to, to communicate, to live. You know, it's part of your, you know, we've lost this idea of any kind of like meaningful lives. You know, it's all this kind of structural. How productive are you going to be? You know, the Secretary of Education put out a tweet, like education is important so you can become good, you know, producers in America. You can, you can help American manufacturing produce more stuff, right? Uh, so things like libraries, and Eric Adams is just a, a horrific, you know, uh, example of that, I think. And so I think that's, you know, again, that's really, we, we talked about this a lot. It's one of our key themes. Like they're clearly, yeah, the Republican party is, I can't find the words to describe them, but this really is a structural problem. And, you know, and Joe Biden clearly wasn't gonna, gonna be, you know, the, the, the solution to all these things, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, I mean, the, I, I believe it was in, uh, I, I believe it was Bannon and the Trump's First in, in Trump's term, early in the Trump's term, who talked about the dismantling of the administrative state, uh, but that's a little bit late to the ball game because the dismantling of the administrative state has been going on for decades before that, mostly under the under the tutelage of Democratic presidents, Democratic governors, Democratic mayors. I mean, Jimmy Carter, right? We we did a show on him, great show, a couple of years ago now, I think, uh, 2020, I believe. But um, Jimmy Carter. Getting back to, the, I think, late for the sky, right? Uh, Jimmy Carter deregulated the airlines. Back in 1980, there were over, I can't remember, I think there were over 20. I know there were over 20 carriers. I can't remember how many. There are four major carriers now. You have the, you know, the kind of regional things or the small ones like Spirit and stuff. But you have, you know, like what, American, Delta, United, I forget. Um, you know, Pan, it used to have Pan Am, TWA. Now you've had all these mergers like Continental and United. And so, you know, it was Jimmy Carter who started this process of deregulation, which, you know, was basically getting rid of the administrative state. And I mean, living in Texas, you see that because whenever something happens in Texas, you had it again last week during the blizzard, Texas got hit with bad weather too. And ERCOT, which we talked about in 2021, when they had the deep freeze there, uh, I can't, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm terrified about what my next, I mean, I'm not even in Texas right now. And my next electric bill is gonna be massive because they buy energy daily and so it's a daily fluctuating price. And so, you know, obviously when it goes down to 19 degrees in Houston, ERCOT, you know, doesn't really have any regulated capability. So the, the energy companies are going to, I mean, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys made a billion dollars in 2021, you know, during that freeze. 
So it's it's really just um, you know a, a, a horrific situation. And, and again, it's this is truly there is bipartisanship. You know, Biden yeah, always yeah. laments there's no bipartisanship. Liberals always talk about bipartisan. Now there's plenty of bipartisanship. Screwing American people is bipartisan. Screwing the average Americans outside of like the top. For the billionaire class. For the billionaire class. For the billionaire class, right? And there's like probably 10, 50% of Americans, people like you and me, who aren't really, you know, kind of the target of it. But it's 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 there. Um, And and one last thing I want to talk about with regard to infrastructure, because we haven't really talked about this, and and Americans have just pretended it's either doesn't exist or it's over or whatever. COVID is still around. And there are, you know, the numbers are going up. We still have. 3,000 people a week dying from COVID. And you have a lot of younger people now having heart attacks and all kinds of long COVID. And, you know, uh, Biden speaks about it in the past tense. The media has had a bunch of articles recently mocking uh, COVID hysteria or whatever they call it, right? Uh, you know, people who want you to wear a mask and things like that. And so, you know, the New Yorker and all these liberal establishment types have said, oh, you know, you guys love it. You want to wear masks forever and all that kind of stuff. And so, again, we've just written it off. And this is a massive public health crisis. And it's been and in, the, in the far right media spaces, everything from Elon Musk's new Twitter to, to you know, the really big nutty stuff like Newsmax and One America is, you know, they're using this opportunity to attack Fauci. Like that's that, you know, Anthony Fauci is like target number one in many ways for the Republicans. And I'm, I'm sure once they take over the House, it'll, it, they've promised, you know, committee hearing after committee hearing for Fauci around vaccinations and masks and all sort of, you know, ridiculous stuff like that, because that's what we should be spending our, our time and money on is disproving how COVID is, is, uh, was never a threat or, or is like a uh, Fauci slash media exaggerated threat. Yeah. It's funny, too, because, you know, remember Biden, you know, during the campaign went off on Trump about COVID. Now, um, China, which, you know, whatever you think about its repressive measures, kept COVID contained. And now, you know, they're having an outbreak. But I think it's funny. um, Passengers coming into the United States have to have a a negative COVID test, right? Once they're out of the airplane, you don't have to wear a mask. You can go on the subway. You can do anything you want, right? So again, I mean, I think it's like, when, you know, when everybody said, oh, it's, it's Trump's China bashing and it's racist and so on and so forth. This is kind of what you have today, right? And this is what you're getting from Biden and Pelosi and, and all these people. It's, it's just an utter abdication of any kind of responsibility for human lives. And, and you mentioned Twitter. I've made the mistake of looking at it more than usual, you know, after the, the Elon Musk train wreck. And I mean, man, that's, that's vicious. I mean, these people are ghouls. There's one story about uh, some Canadian health official who dealt with COVID who died you know, suddenly, and they're like, well, he had a vaccine, he died suddenly. It took me three minutes to look it up. He died by suicide, you know? And I keep seeing these things like 180,000 young children have died, you know, because of the vaccine. It's like, no, they no, they didn't, you know? It, it's really terrifying that they these people have had the initial, and that's the thing I really blame Trump the most for, you know, those tweets, liberate Michigan, liberate. And, and these folks are still, I mean, he's kind of won that battle, right? That COVID denial battle. That is the kind of yeah, mainstream yeah, opinion true. now. You don't, I mean, liberals, you know, you don't, I go out, I'm usually the only person or one of maybe five people in wherever I go that has a mask on, you know, even on the airlines, which are terrifying, you know, right. There's no one, no one has a mask on. Living in, you know, Berkeley, California, one of the most liberal zip codes in the country is you see less and less masks uh, when when you're out places. I probably see more than you do, but still it's like seriously in 
decline the number of masks you see when you go to restaurants and stores and things like that. I don't eat inside of restaurants still, but it, but if you look, there's a lot of people who aren't wearing masks anymore. Yeah, I mean, and this could also deviate, divert into a, a discussion of kind of community and share responsibility. We're not going to go there, but yeah, I mean, that's clearly yeah. it, it clearly. I mean, again, that, that those GIP GOP talking points and but i mean i i that's not even fair because clinton and obama were were as much of that as as you know the bushes or, or reagan really so we really are in this out of this thick you know everybody's for himself doggy dog world and and that's uh i think for people well, i mean i don't even know if it's an age thing i mean i was gonna say for people our age you know because we we people you know the communities we've been in we we do know a different world and think it's possible so uh, I'm, I'm, I was going to segue into another uh, big yeah. issue, which is a little bit of a, you know, another, another form of bipartisanship going on. Uh, and we've done a lot of shows on this. We actually have what we call uh, our, our seminar on the war in Ukraine. Uh, I just want to say a couple of things about this, which is one, Bob and I started out together as organizers, organizing anti-corporate campaigns against war profiteering companies like Halliburton, which were, uh, seriously involved in the, you know, the one making a profit, but then also like doing like logistical support for the war in Iraq. And so our priorities haven't shifted that much. And you can go back and listen to like all of our shows when we talk with Clinton Fernandez and William Hartung and Prothop Chatterjee and, and others about, about the war. And so I encourage you to do that. But we've also gotten, a, but I just want to have a little bit of a, 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 a commentary here. We've, we've gotten a lot of criticism, especially lately, uh, from so-called leftists who uh, who um, about our opposition of the pro NATO proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, we've been called or uh, pro-Putin apologists, dupes, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, looking back on that work that we did around Halliburton and Iraq, there's a myriad of reasons why the war, the war in Ukraine has happened. Some of it because Putin's psycho. And some of it is also because there's this, you know, geopolitical, uh, you know, maneuvering by the U.S. and its allies and NATO and other parts of the world to, you know, to, to put Russia and China on a sort of bleed them and put them in, in, on a defense. And so you can listen to our other episodes, but the one of our previous episodes, I really just want to kind of harp on. So when these so-called leftists are, you know, think we're dead wrong on Iraq excuse me, on Ukraine, is I want to actually just talk about U.S.-based defense contractors and arm manufacturings for a, for a moment, right? And so we're talking about all of this, you know, cor big corporate bailouts, draconian war on workers, customers getting screwed over, um, infrastructure failing. It's all part of the sort of same project, which is, uh, which is to put a lot of money in the pockets of like corporate CEOs. And so with Ukraine, we've seen Ukraine put a whole lot of money in uh, the pockets of CEOs. We've um, this year we've seen hundreds of billions of dollars go to military aid to Ukraine. A lot of that is going to companies like Raytheon and Northrop Grumman. Um, I want to just kind of point out a couple of quotes that we said back when the war started, uh, just as a reminder for folks. Um, one was from Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes, who a couple of months before the war started said, "We are seeing, I would say, opportunities for international sales. We have to look." to last week where we saw the drone attack in the UAE, where ha where, which have attacked some of, of their other facilities. 
And of course, the tensions in Eastern Europe, the tensions in the South China Sea, all those things are putting pressure on some defense spending over there. And then you know, just, just to highlight this, so I fully expect we're going to see some benefit from it. You know, um, so when we oppose you know, NATO proxy wars in Ukraine, like I said, there's a myriad of reasons that we oppose it, one of which is because there's, this is basically putting money in the pockets of like corporate CEOs and big shareholders all over the country. Um, the CEO of Northrop Grumman at the time, Kathy Warden, uh, tried to actually start, tried to sort of uh, negate some of the negative press from that the other that the arms manufacturers were getting, uh, and so she actually went this route where they're the kinder, gentler cruise missile uh, development company. And she said, "I do want to be clear: we are a defense contractor, and so we are supporting global security missions." largely in areas of deterrence, but also inclusive of weapon systems. And we expect to continue in the, we expect to continue in those businesses because we believe they actually promote global human rights proliferation, not the contrary, right? So there's this, there's this sort of um, idea that I think comes from the NATO liberals. We've done a whole show on NATO liberals, but also so-called leftists are really just NATO liberals, just to kind of be real clear. It's like there, there's nothing more than like a liberal analysis going on there, that they think this is somehow U.S. goodwill, humanitarian intervention, uh, but it's not. It's oh, there for profit. It's, it's about power. It's, it's, about, it's, it's about politics. Oh, it's about new politics. Is that what it is? New politics. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a power. tempest. Yeah. It's about power. It's about profit. Sorry, Bob's distracting me. I'm laughing too much here. Uh, but I just want to, I just want to say that like Lockheed Martin, year to date, their profits were up 37%. Northrop Grumman, year to date, their profits are up 41%. General Dynamics, year to date, their profits were up 19%. Raytheon, kind of coming in last year, year to date, their profits were up 16%. Uh, and so you know, we're talking about this erosion of infrastructure. We talk about, you know, budget cuts. We talk about privatization. We talk about big money going into the pockets of CEOs through bailouts. Uh, but we're also talking about how the U.S. is like funding a war uh, for, you know, basically also to put money in the pockets of a lot of these arms manufacturers. It's not the only reason. Um, and, and, and like I said, we're not apologizing for Putin. But there is like there's not a, this is not a goodwill intervention on the part of the U.S. and NATO into into Ukraine, right? If if if, if this was an opportunity for them to bleed Russia and to put China a little bit more on the defensive, then they would be, you know, they wouldn't give a shit about Ukraine. Just to put it out there. So yeah. that was my commentary, which turned into a little bit of a rant, but it was very well, well informed. I had a lot of facts. So and and I think I mean it's still, um, you know, I think we're beyond a point where we're shocked by anything, but it's. I mean, I think it's a little surprising to see so many people, not really just NATO liberals, but people who would call themselves socialists and people on the left, right? And, you know, I- And, anar I mean, and anarchists. And yeah, I was kind of being a jackass earlier, but honestly, like the journal New Politics, I mean, they've come after um, come after us. And, and you know, I, I, they actually attack the use of the word diplomacy, which is just, to me, makes me shudder. I mean, in 1914, you know, there had been this hope that the working people would reject this global war that was, you know, brewing in, in Europe. And they did. When the war began, all the socialist parties joined up, linked up with their own national interests. And this is still the case. And so you have these people attacking someone, you know, I mean, Chomsky gets attacked all the time. He's pro-Putin. He's an apologist. You know, he's old. He's this, he's that. It's, it's stunning. 
I mean, like, let's let's be sure of this. I mean, you're right. It's it's insane that every fucking time we talk about this, we have to say Putin is a monster, right? It's just ridiculous. Um, it's like, you know, back when you had to condemn the 911 attacks as if you would like think, oh, that was a great idea, right? But it's a bloodbath there. It's it's a it's I mean, huge numbers of people have been killed on both sides, uh, including a lot of civilians. There are atrocities being committed by both armies. Um, you know, a lot of people on the left, the kind of anywhere left, like to talk about the Azov Battalion and Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky's not some kind of liberal reformer. At the same time, neither is Putin, right? So you're dealing with two rightist forces. Uh, those of us on the left have nothing to gain from this conflict, right? Uh, geopolitically, globally, um, it's it's a bloodbath. Uh, Russia, you know, the media uh, three or four times in the past year has said, you know, Russia's on the ropes. You know, Ukraine, vic Ukrainian victory is is nearby. That's not the case because Russia can rebound. Russia can inflict damage. You know, can it defeat Ukraine per se and take over the country? No, I can't do that, especially not with NATO backing and the amount of money. And may I say, if, if you want to go back and, and listen to our uh, show, especially I think with Bill Hartung on that, which was really great and ProThought Chatterjee about corporate profit and, and, and uh, Ukraine. But I think it's also important, and this is something we really don't talk about much on the left, is like all this money, like this massive money, uh, probably over a hundred billion now, just in the you know, the past few years, going to Ukraine is being done, is being, you know, done. That kind of policy is being conducted while railroad workers are being told by the most pro-union president ever, right? Uh, to go back to work, you know, with with a contract that was basically forced upon them by uh, the railroad operators. Uh Student debt is is still, you know, Biden's plan was minimal to begin with, and it's being mucked up in the courts. There are homeless people. Uh, the airline industry is an utter disaster. And, you know, you can go on and on and on and on. Healthcare around COVID. Yeah, healthcare disaster. around COVID. So, you know, we can pay, you know, we can give a $40 billion supplemental military aid to Ukraine, but you can't pay for, uh, you know, vaccinations or covid tests or, or whatever so um yeah and and the idea that people on the left and i have nothing but condemnation for them would attack the use of the word diplomacy or engage in these mccarthyist tactics and i've gotten that with regard to like cuba and this i'm also called a tanky all the time which like hallelujah i'm a tanky i don't think they i don't think they know what that word really means and why why it came about and i don't think they really know what happened in hungary in 1956 either uh, but, you know, this is just the way they operate. You're a tanky, you're a Putin apologist. And it's it's like right wing MAGA bullshit. It's like Fox News bullshit. And, and you know, I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want. It's not up to me to say you are, you aren't. But, you know, in my world, New Politics, Tempest and all those people, and they know who they are. Uh, they're not part of a political community that I think is going to really do anything to, to help, you know, the majority of us. So. Um. The, the only other thing, the only other thing I would say is that, the, thinking about the, 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 the dupes and who the dupes are, is you know they, they should develop a little bit more of an analysis around liberal, liberal capitalist political economy if they if they really want to engage in this discussion and not just be spouting off NATO liberal talking points on, yeah, on I mean, regular on the regular basis. And they talk about capitalism. I don't think there's an understanding of what capitalism is. You know, when you're on the same side. You know, what's ironic now is like I used to say when you're on the same side as, but, you know, Mark Milley, the chair, I, I was attacked last week because I said, you know, you guys are now too far to the right of the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
Mark Milley, who's called for negotiations. And let's be clear, that's what these people are talking about. We got a lot of shit for one of our recent shows on Ukraine, you know. Uh, and, and you know, I said, what you guys are saying is that negotiations are bad, diplomacy is bad, and you have to stay in this and continue to uh, escalate this war until Russia is actually defeated. Now, I don't know if that's even possible, and it could take a long time, and there's no doubt it's going to cost, you know, screw the money, it's going to kill people. It's going to bloody people. It's going to destroy people's lives. And, and to ignore that is, is utterly, you know, shameful. And, you know, this is one where, you know, I have no problem, you know, being, being an asshole about it. I mean, there's, there's no room for compromise. When you start to echo, you know, the talking points of, of NATO and Raytheon, you know, when we did the Cuba show, we caught all that too, that same stuff. You know, when you're talking the same junk as, as Miami Cubans, then, you know, you can call yourself a socialist, but, you know, you, you know, that ain't a socialist that I've ever seen. So, yeah. Um, uh, segue to the next thing. Yeah, I just very briefly, I know we keep saying that, but we don't have that much time left. I do want to say something about the, the January 6th commission uh, only because I followed it. I haven't followed it that closely, but it's I know it's great theater and liberals have eaten it up. Uh, but they came out with their final report and, and the thrust of the report. And it was in the headlines and all the major, you know, established paper, New York Times, Washington Post. One man, and that was always their quote, one man held responsible for January 6th, obviously Trump. And this clearly was a jihad to get Trump. And I have no problem with that. Unlike a lot of people, I don't really care if the FBI goes after the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all that. I, I'm not on I'm not on my Taibi on my side, even though I'm well aware of what the government does, right? But at the same time, that whole idea, and this is kind of the way the liberals address things, right? One man did it all, which means that the structure that created Trump and that created January 6th. And all the other people involved in it have, are most likely going to escape, right? Because you certainly can't count on Merrick Garland to do anything aggressive. And that means Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Mo Brooks and Gates and Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and who knows who else, the, the crazy representatives from Arizona, like Gozar, and I forget the other one, right? So far, they're, they're untouched and they'll probably Andy be Biggs. that way. Andy Biggs. Biggs, yeah. And, and again, I mean, I think this gets to this whole kind of, and I could go on a rant here because I think this is kind of the basis of a lot of the JFK conspiracy theory too, right? You look at one person to have this like, you know, JFK was going to end the war and save the world and Trump is uniquely evil and was going to, now Trump is, there aren't words to describe him. He's insane. He should be, you know, he's like the, that relative or, you know, person who's just really lost it at his old age. You really have sympathy for him, but you don't want to be around him either, right? I mean, he should be, you know, in a straitjacket or something in, in a padded room. I don't know a cell Yetma would be great too but like one guy can't do all that you know and yeah. we're seeing now with what, the january 6th commission that what gets me is like this came their report indicated this widespread you know and you know granted at the level of like oath keepers and proud boys they're going on trial they've already been convicted and that's great but you know that that level that that buffer level kind of think of frankie frankie pentangeli right or no um uh it wasn't it was um was it willie cheech yeah, the really family huge. had a lot of buffers. Yeah, the family had a lot of buffers. Well, that's what yeah. Jordan is. That's what Gates is. That's what Cruz is. That's what Hawley is. They're all buffers. And they're skating. And, and I think this kind of obsession with Trump really is a disaster. And, you know, in, in my mind, the three people most happy about the January 6th commission are obviously Liz Cheney, right? Because this is very personal with her. Trump has destroyed the Republican Party her father <laughs> created, right? Uh, mainly for, what that, because, for, for what that is, yeah. Yeah, well, I think mainly because he's so gauche and vulgar in the way he did it, you know. Uh, but Liz Cheney, 
Mitch McConnell is thrilled to get rid of Trump and Ron DeSantis. The three people who benefit the most from this idea that one man did it all are Cheney, McConnell, and DeSantis, right? And I know McConnell's under siege and all that kind of stuff, but clearly every other, not every other Republican, I suspect Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bober, Gates and Jordan are crazy enough to believe their own shit. But, you know, the Republican Party is thanking, you know, this is their best case, win-win, right? You get rid of Trump and you can blame the Democrats. You can blame January 6th commission. You can blame yep. the, the liberal media. You can blame the Marxist or whatever, right? And so I just wanted to rant about that. Once again, liberals have no concept, Democrats especially, on how to wage a political war. You know, uh, when, you know, something comes up, Nancy Pelosi's comments are usually like, oh, I don't even want to talk about it. We talk about him too much. You, you never heard a Republican do that, right? You're Let's not talk about him when we're eating, actually. Let's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you have to do that. It is a, the Republican Party has understood for a half century, really. Wars don't end. It's a constant war. And, and and liberals don't get that. And and I'm surprised actually now a lot of lefties, I think, don't understand that. Lefty lefty comedian, Nato Green, all-time all great quote, liberals prepare for brunch, Republicans prepare for war. Yeah. And so just once again, you know, let's hope, let's pray, let's hope for a miracle that 2023 brings this increased awareness and willingness to fight and, and to get in the trenches and get dirty. Um, because you know, uh, these guys don't back down. You have this, you know, like look at Santos in New York. I mean, the guy's living in this massive lie, but he's gonna be seated in Congress, you know, in a few days. So he's, he's an extra vote for McCarthy. Hey, I just want to say real quick that you're listening to the Green and Red podcast end of year episode. If you like what you're hearing, check us out at greenandredpodcast.org. If you want to support us, hit that support button. If you want to support us regularly, hit go to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash green red podcast. We're, uh, we're, we're kind of more ornery, I think, than I expected today. I think all this is coming out, you know. Um, yeah. If I don't know if you have anything else to say. I was going to segue into our last section. Scott and I want to pay tribute to two people who are, are very important to us. And um, also to kind of talk a little bit about what their lives meant, not just for us, but in, in a larger sense of community for people like us. And um, I want to start with somebody I've talked about a lot since we started this podcast, he was actually the first interview we ever did in our second episode. And that's Stott Lynn, who died about six weeks ago now, I think. Um, and I, you've heard me mention many times, it was actually kind of a point of pride. Stott lived in Niles, Ohio, where I live. You know, I, I got a chance to, to spend time with him over the past decade or so. And, um, you know, his, his legacy is, is amazing. If you read, you know, his obituaries uh, as a scholar, as a historian, he's incredibly important. He was influencing me. He and his wife, Alice, were influencing me and inspiring me before I ever knew really who they were, you know, certainly before I ever met them. His work as part of the New Left was just instrumental and, and monumentally important. Um, but what really stands out is that, you know, Stoughton didn't just, um, you know, kind of write and, and pontificate and talk. Uh, Stoughton, you know, lived it. Um, a phrase he liked to use later in life was accompaniment, which he took from Romero, Archbishop Romero in El Salvador. But I think it's kind of similar to like the beloved community or, you know, kind of the types of things SDS and Stick were talking about too, which is, you know, you can write about this, you can have theories about it, but you actually have to live it as well, right? It's an experience lived and shared. And I mean, Stott lived in a, in a kind of a commune in Georgia, Mesopotamia uh, in the 50s. Um, in, in the 1960s, he was one of the found founders he was he was a founder and, and director of the SNCC education project in Mississippi freedom summer Stan Lynn was in Mississippi in in 
1960, in the summer of 1964, right? That's not easy, right? Um, in fact, somebody in Mississippi was going around and they were hearing him talk. And he started talking about the Vietnam War very early too. And uh, at, at his memorial service, they had his butts. He had this great political button collection. And one of them said, uh, Lind, not Lyndon, meaning I like Stunt Lind, not Lyndon Johnson, which is really great. That's a great mantra, right? Lind, not Lyndon. Uh, but he did that. He was active. I mean, he told harrowing stories about like, you know, being with Martin Luther King, being with Vincent Harding, being with John Lewis, right? Uh, and, you know, picking people up, you know, uh, African-American people uh, up at airports in Mississippi in nighttime in 1964. And then in 1965, uh, he was on a tenure track position at Yale, brilliant scholar. And um, he and uh, uh, another historian, a communist named Herbert Apthecker and Tom Hayden from SDS uh, went to Vietnam. Uh, they went to Hanoi to discuss the war and diplomacy and things like that. And um, when Stoughton got back, Yale, you know, Black Baldwin and, and told him you're not getting tenure. And he couldn't get a job after that, which eventually led him to go to law school and become a labor lawyer and then a death penalty lawyer. So I think, you know, his life is, is it's meaningful in so many ways. He's a scholar, he's a civil rights activist, he's an anti-war activist, he's a labor activist, and he's a death penalty activist in one career, in one, one person, right? Um, and so I think, you know, that, that idea of accompaniment is really important. And that also, if I, if I go on another rant about the left, because that's kind of one of my things is, I don't think Stott and Lynn, Stott and Lynn's life, or even Noam's life, or, you know, a lot of people like that would be possible today because the left environment has changed so much. I mean, Stott and Lynn had to go out and travel all over the country, talk to campus, he talked to Mississippi. Noam did the same thing. Noam spoke at teachers. He's talked to us about that, right? He, he, he was at Fred Hampton's funeral, right? Nowadays, the left is really media centric and media centric in, in particular areas, right? Especially like, you know, Manhattan, Brooklyn, your area, to be honest, right? Um, and they are, they're elites. They really are. And so you have this kind of Brooklyn mafia and this West Coast, you know, cabal, and they kind of suck up a lot of oxygen. And, you know, it's, it's you know, the Jackman people, Chapo, uh, Ben Burgess, you know, um, Crystal Ball. I mean, this is the people the left the, who are icons on the left, Solnit. And I, I like to name names because, you know, I, I got nothing to lose. And, you know, I think it's important to kind of re rethink who your so-called heroes are. But, you're, you know, we have this media left now. And, you know, Stoughton wouldn't be on Twitter having wars and trolling people. You know, Noam doesn't have a, a Twitter account or a Facebook page. Uh, and, and people like that understood that, you know, you know, they, they had a public presence and they were written up in The New York Times. And they their speeches were, were, were actually recorded, you know, like on vinyl, reel to reel and, and shared. And they were on community radio and they were all there were teachings. They were traveling. Uh, they were in Mississippi. They were at the uh, March on Washington. Uh, they were at the Pentagon, you know, for protests. And and today, those aren't the people that that really have that kind of cachet in the left, which is why one of the things we really try to do is to talk to people like that. I'm not going to start naming names because I'll forget them, but just look at the shows we've had. I mean, a lot of these are like, we're really like, I, you know, I like talking to, to big shots, you know, the big shot, the Peso Avante. But most of our shows really aren't like that. They are with people who are in the trenches, who are imprisoned, who are uh, arrested, who are doing the kinds of things that, frankly, I doubt people in Brooklyn are even aware of. Uh, and and yet, you know, we we think they're vital to what we do. Or so, when you do, when I personally made some of them aware of it behind the scenes, and they just don't seem to care. Is the other thing? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, when we had the, remember the Colin College professors, you know, who really, I mean, they lost their jobs for, they lost their jobs on First Amendment issues. And I remember like specifically going after like a lot of these celebrity media types saying, hey, you need to cover this. Nothing, not a damn thing. Right. And yeah. it's just really, you know, you can't be part of a left. I mean, I don't really give a shit if you debate Zizek or Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, and, and they're all self-important intellectuals. They write about everything. They're experts at everything. And, and, you know, I don't think, and, and then when I look at Stockman's life and his idea of a company, man, um, I know you and I, I mean, we're not comparing ourselves at all to anything like that, but I think, you know, what we cherish is we do this now, but, you know, we also, you continue to, but I've also had a, a you know, tried to do what I could, you know, a, as an activist and, and it wasn't enough, but, you know, I think, and there are a lot of people doing that. I have colleagues yeah. who do that. I, I have friends who do that, you know, which is why. You know, when when uh, I, I saw lefties defending Musk and, and 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 Taibbi, and I said, "Come on," you know, they're like, "Oh, you support the FBI?" It's like the FBI has put people I know in jail. The FBI has hassled people I know, has arrested people I know. No, I don't support the FBI. And and you know, those guys in Brooklyn, those people in Brooklyn, Crystal Ball and Katie Halper, they don't have to worry about that, right? They have no. their they have their Substacks and their their big Patreons. They're not using Patreons to pay meager, you know. A, the people who do stuff for us are basically working at subminimal wage. They're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. And we give them what we can just because we believe in that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so. And it's a lot of volunteers. Well, yeah. volunteer support. we get. And so I just want to say that, you know, Scotland's <laughs> life is crucial for so many reasons for his work and everything, but also because he gave us that, that idea as many others have, I'm just singling him out because he died recently. He's just, you know, very important in, in my own career, in my own life. Yeah. Uh, of accompaniment. And I don't think somebody like Stott would would have that kind of role in, in today's left. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. I want to I want to say I want to say one important thing though is like just just as a fact, we've done a couple of shows from line three, from the from the line three mm -hmm. pipeline fight. We've done many shows about it, but there have been at least two where Bob interviewed me and Jake Conroy about our travels to to uh, northern Minnesota fighting the line three pipeline. We've also done shows from D.C. around the Roe versus Wade protests and direct actions that were happening around that. There's two examples, but we we talked to a lot of people who are in the streets and in the back back country fighting, you know, energy projects, fighting in the streets around, you know, the 2020 uprisings, all of that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so just like um, kind of like key key thing, we talked to a lot of activists and organizers yeah, versus I mean, just uh, like talking heads and podcasts. Yeah. Daniel, Daniel McGowan. Um, Leslie Pickerington. Pickerington, yeah. Uh, we talked to representatives for Daniel Hale and Jessica Resnicek. And, you know, I, I don't see these folks elsewhere. So I think that's that's really crucial. You just did a bunch of stuff on the uh, UC strike, which, yep. you know, got oh, a little, yeah. but nowhere near like kind of what I think you did with it, you know, so. Yep. Um, we should segue to our last bit. Yep. Um, so the other the other person that we wanted to talk about today was my friend uh, Rebecca Tarbotten, who uh, was the executive director of Rainforest Action Network, or RAN, where I still work. Uh, Becky, as we called her, the 10th anniversary of her death was this week. Uh, and so I just wanted to, to say a couple of things about her. She was RAN's first woman executive director. She was viewed as a visionary by many. Um, but I'll, I'll say that I worked really closely with her because before she was the executive director, she was Rand's climate director, which meant she was my boss. Uh, and so we did a lot of campaigning against Wall Street banks, trying to get them to stop funding, financing 
environmental bad actors. We worked together really closely on the mountaintop removal coal mining campaign. Um, but just to, to say, to get the banks to stop funding them. And I also say that we actually had a lot of success in that. Uh, we went after one particular bad actor a coal mining company called Massey Energy and got all of the big banks to stop funding Massey Energy. Massey Energy actually is a company that went out of business. Uh, other companies bought their all their coal mines and things like that. But I just want to say that we actually worked pretty hard. It was a it was a it was a um, multi front sort of campaign, but we did the sort of bank and finance campaign. Um, but Becky actually spent uh, a number of years working in India. Uh, working with local communities around food justice and around food systems and things like that. And she had a real feel for the front lines, particularly in a, in a global majority country. Um, and so by the time Becky became a campaign director and program director and executive director at RAND, one of the strategies that she really brought to RAND was bringing the front lines to the corporate suites. And that was like a lot of the work we did. I would do the outside pressure when she was the campaign director and then Becky would meet the bank in the boardroom, often bringing Appalachian frontline community members, et cetera. Um, I remember in late 2008, the first campaign that we had started was trying to get Bank of America to stop funding mountaintop removal coal mining. I was actually at the UN climate talks imposed on Poland at the time that Bank of America basically came out and said that uh, they were actually going to implement policies to stop funding uh, some of these coal companies, particularly Massey Energy. Um, and I remember having a call with Becky from Poland where we cried, where we both admitted to each other that we had cried when we found out that we had moved Bank of America. Um, Becky was very much about the movements and the communities. Uh, and it's kind of really important to say is that we like moved in lockstep with the, with the communities that we worked with on that campaign and then in other, other work that we did at RAN. Um, I also say that uh, liberals at the National Refor Resources, this I want to dig on liberals, is uh, liberals at the at the National Resources Defense Council actually tried to take credit for that campaign and like omitted the work of movements and communities trying to actually move move Bank of America. Uh, but Becky died on December 26th, 2012. It was pretty devastating for a lot of us. Um, I'll say that there were a lot of people, there's a lot of notable people who had things to say about her. Um, but I actually just want to say a couple of quotes from Becky about uh, to say more about her than anything that Mike Brune or Bill McKibben have to say about her. Um, one, she co-authored a, a call for mass direct, direct action on climate, which has been a focus of this show and has been a big focus of my work. But they said she and she co-wrote this with Bill McKibben and, and Phil Radford, who was the director of Greenpeace at the time. We're making progress, but not as fast as the physical situation is deteriorating. Time is not on our side. We've concluded that going forward, mass direct action must play a bigger role in this movement as it eventually did with the suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, and the fight against corporate globalization. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of like mass direct action really emerge in the last 10 years. I'll say that Becky uh, was one of the people who was like really thinking about that and figuring out ways to implement that at Rainforest Action Network. And then uh, another quote, which is actually from the last speech she gave before she passed away, is she said the project of our time is bigger than even even it's bigger even than climate change. We need to be setting our sights higher and deeper. What we're really talking about, if we're honest with ourselves, is transforming everything about the way we live on this planet. Uh, you know, talking about accompaniment 
um, versus like sort of just being this left media superstar. Becky was very much one of those people who, I, I don't know if we ever really used that term or thought about it, but accompaniment is like the work that she did. And that's the work she promoted, whether it was working with communities in India, whether it was, you know, working with communities in Appalachia, being on the ground in Appalachia, fighting mountaintop removal. Um, the other real notable thing that she's known for is um, we ran, shifted to doing a lot of work around Indonesian rainforests and working with communities there. And one of the last victories that Rand got before she passed away was getting Disney to like take, you know, uh, rainforest paper out of um, out of their out of their publishing uh, division. And so that was like a big thing. But like always, this accompaniment with communities, supporting communities, supporting movements was like a big piece of Becky of Becky's work. And so I just want to like. 10th anniversary of the, the passage of my friend Becky. Um, and just want to say Becky Tarbot and present day, we still think about you 10 years later. Um, before we leave, I want to thank Scott. I want to thank you because uh, Scott does all the heavy lifting on this. Um, you know, he's doing the YouTube stuff. He's maintaining our website. He's um, keeping our books, uh, so to speak. And, you know, uh, you know, really makes this thing occur. I kind of, you know, occasionally get a guest or I show up and talk a lot, but he's doing uh, so much of that vital work that, um, you know, as lefties, we're supposed to appreciate, right? And I just want to know that I, I really do. Um, also, uh, if you're interested, Scott and I just put out our, we always do a best of, or our favorite really, not a best of, but they're all great. But uh, we kind of do our kind of some of our favorite shows of the year. So you can check that out. You can see uh, the ones that we liked in particular, although we really did like them all. And, um, and finally, may I say, uh, I hope uh, uh, you rest in distress, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who uh, the ex-pope who died today, who was a Nazi and the inquisitor of the Catholic Church. So uh, not shedding any tears about that one. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Bob, because this wouldn't be the same without you. So appreciate everything that you bring to this. Um, I'll say that maybe I'll just do the wrap now. Um, folks, if you like the Green and Red podcast, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hit subscribe on YouTube if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you really like us, check us out at greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button and go to Patreon and become a Patreon. Go to Patreon and become a patron at patreon.com, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And, you know, wrapping 2022, hoping for a better 2023. And we'll talk to you all again next year. So uh, make trouble and misbehave. No one likes us. I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one. See what happened We give them money But are they grateful? No, they're spiteful And they're hateful They don't respect us So let's surprise them We'll drop the beer